to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where tour players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their stories, insights, and playing lessons. Join Chris every Tuesday night as he talks with the greats of the game. Tonight's show is sponsored by TaylorMade Golf, the PGA Tour Superstore, Two Under, Golf Pride, Srixon Cleveland Golf. Your best performance starts with the right golf ball. Sun Mountain Golf Bags, Finn Scooters, making the game more fun. Adele Golf, hit it, flip it, dial it in. And the Mclemore Club Experience, live above the clouds. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Good evening, folks, and thank you for joining me for this week's edition of Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro. Last week, we kicked off season number nine with a bang, talking with Tom Patry, Billy Mayfair, Hal Sutton, and Owen Brown. And there's no let up in this week, folks. I've got another great lineup that I can't wait to share with you. So thank you for joining me and for continuing to make Next on the T a part of your weekly golf content. And thank you as well for continuing to vote for the show in the podcast magazine Hot 50 list. Four months in a row now, you've put us inside the top 10. To vote, go online to podcastmagazine.com forward slash hot 50. You can vote for three of your favorite podcasts. And I thank you for continuing to make Next on the T one of them. Okay, on to tonight's show. My first guest is going to be Mitch Lawrence. You guys know how much I love the Lawrence brothers. For those of you who are fans of the Rocky movies, remember that scene in Rocky 4 before the big fight between Rocky and Ivan Drago where Polly says to Rocky, If I could unzip myself and become somebody else, I'd want to be you. That's how I feel about Mitch Lawrence. He's a great man who's done a lot of very cool things, and I can't thank him enough for being such a wonderful friend of the show. Tonight, we're going to focus on a very important event that's coming up this Thursday, and it involves prayers and golf in support of the people in Ukraine. Mitch is heavily involved, and we are both supporting an organization called Please Awaken, run by a mutual friend of ours, Steve Jacobs. So we'll hear a lot about that. Plus, we'll also talk about the Masters and a few other things as well, I'm sure. Looking forward to having Mitch back as part of the show. He'll join me here in just a few minutes. Following him, I'll get a return visit from 1978 PGA and 1986 Players Champion John Mahaffey. I had the privilege of having John on the show about six months ago and had such a great time that I wanted to get him back on as soon as possible. I'll talk to John about his win at that 86 Players which came down to he and Larry Mize. They were playing in the final group. Mize had a four-stroke lead coming down the stretch. We'll hear about the events that unfolded that led to John getting that big win. We'll also hear about what it was like for him being a Texas native and winning the 1985 Valero Texas Open, plus his experiences playing in the Masters, and he's written two wonderful books that we'll talk about as well. Looking forward to having John back on the show. He'll join me about 20 minutes from now. Following him, I'll get a visit from PGA Tour legend Jim Gallagher Jr. Jim grew up in a very golf-centric family. His father was a 50-year PGA professional and a three-time president of the PGA of America. His sister, brother, and wife are all PGA professionals. In fact, the Gallagher family was awarded the PGA Jack Nicklaus Golf Family of the Year back in 1990. So we'll talk about that. Plus his college days playing at the University of Tennessee. Jim won five times out on tour, so we're going to delve into some of those victories, plus what it was like being a part of the winning 1993 Ryder Cup team and beating Seve in the singles matches on Sunday. Jim is going to join me a little bit later on in this hour. 
Then we'll round out tonight's show with a visit from Dustin Brecky and Eddie Dry from Strixon Cleveland Golf. We're going to hear about their new Cleveland Launcher XL driver that won gold in the Golf Digest hot list. We'll talk about wedge enhancements and get a bit technical with groove depth and design and how their wedges are going to help us hit it higher and land it softer around the greens. Plus, how to know which golf ball is the right one for your game. It isn't always the most expensive ball, folks. That's the best one for us to play. We'll talk about that and a whole lot more when they join me at the top of the next hour. So there you have it, folks. More great stories, tips, and information are coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the Tee. And thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. Before we get started, I want to remind you about our friends over at the Macklemore. My buddies and I were there last year for our annual golf trip, and it was so amazing. We're going back again this year. Everything about the place is first class. We had great accommodations. The practice facility is wonderful. The on-premise restaurant called The Craig has outstanding food and service. And the course lived up to every great expectation that we had for it. I can't say enough great things about it. Folks, go online to themaclemore.com to see how spectacular the place is for yourself. The golf course is co-designed by our good friends Bill Bergen and Reese Jones. And our friend and PGA Tour caddy Kip Hanley said, Outside of Pebble Beach, it's the most beautiful 18th hole he's ever seen. And Golf Digest agreed, oh, by the way, naming it the best finishing hole in America since 2000. See why we're all bragging about it by going online to themaclemore.com. And folks, this segment of the show is brought to you by TaylorMade. Golf is an interesting game because the better you hit the ball, the fewer shots you have to hit. That means the better you hit the ball, the less golf you actually have to play. That's why TaylorMade made the all-new Stealth Irons. TaylorMade Stealth Irons feature a cap-back design with a 3D toe wrap designed to help deliver increased distance throughout the bag and more forgiveness on those occasional or maybe not so occasional less than perfect shots. The result? Better shots more often. So you get to have more fun more often. So if you're the kind of golfer who wants to play less golf more often, try the all-new Stealth Irons from TaylorMade, Beyond Driven. Okay, now back with me, and I'm very humbled to say this, for the 12th time, it's one of the great people you get to meet in this life, and certainly one of the best individuals in our game of golf, and that's Mitch Lawrence. You guys have heard me talking for years about Mitch's podcast, Talking Golf Getaways. Sadly, he and Darren Bunch are putting a bow around that show to move on to do other things. But beyond Mitch's immense talents behind the microphone, he's just one of the great experts on Hickory Golf Clubs and the history of this game and just in general. When people ask me, who would you put in your dream foursome? For sure, Mitch Lawrence is one of them. And it's always a thrill to have him with me here on Next on the Tee. Good evening, Mitch. How are you, my friend? Wow. Talk about humbling things to be included in your foursome, given everybody that you know. (laughs) That is an honor, my friend. I'm, I'm, I'm beyond grateful to be on with you tonight. Mitch, I, I want to spend as much time as you want talking about a very important event coming up this Thursday. Our good friend Steve Jacobs and Police Awakening is putting together a day of interfaith prayer and golf in support of the people over in Ukraine. Talk about that event and Steve's organization and the great things they're doing. Uh, I would be happy to. I could literally go on for hours. Over the last year or so, uh, I first was introduced to Steve by a really, really good friend um, out in L.A. As you know, I spent a lot of years out there acting and made a lot of great friends, and one of them was Bill Snitrovich. And your listeners might not know the name, but if they were to Google Bill Snitrovich and go on his IMDb list, there were, there's more things that Bill Smitrovich has been in than, than you could shake a stick at. Um, 
Crime Story and Independence Day, Air Force One. Uh, just, I, I literally could go on forever about Bill, but one day Bill got in touch with me and he said that, uh, before, right before the pandemic, he had gotten a chance to go to South Africa. And there he and another great friend of my brother Matthew and mine, Dennis Haysbert, who's also a great actor. You know him. You know who Dennis is, don't you? I'm putting I you do. on the spot, but Dennis, you, and the listeners, if you've ever watched the major league movies, um, Dennis played Pedro Serrano, the pitcher, the, and anyway, and he's got a great resume also, but he and Dennis went over. They were invited by Steve to go to South Africa and participate in the Please Awaken um, Celebrity and Living Legends Golf Tour, which Steve and his partner, Lalita Von Fleming, had created. And Bill got in touch with me, and he said, I want you to find out about Steve. I want you to um, meet him, talk to him on the phone, uh, because he's doing so many great things that I think all of us should be a part of it. And so I did, and I got in touch with Steve, and we've spent many, many, many hours on the phone since then. And the only thing I can say about Steve and, and Lolita is that you and I both know people, especially in golf, too, who give back, who are interested in helping other people through the game. Um, but I can honestly say in my 45 years in the game almost, I've never met anyone more dedicated more passionate, more giving than Steve Jacobs. Um, he himself is from a really well-known golfing family in South Africa. He played on the South African tour from 86 to 93. Um, you know, Ernie L, Gary Player, all they're all part of the same family. Uh, and after he played on tour, he spent a number of years uh, teaching, which is what his main thing was. And he lived in Germany and Austria uh, and South Africa. And in 2015, he was incredibly moved by, he was living in Germany, and there was a right-wing anti-Muslim street demonstration that he witnessed. And it so mortified him that he then decided, along with Lalita, to start Police Awaken. Uh, and that initiative grew into the one that's been going on uh, in South Africa since the beginning of the pandemic. They were in South Africa and then couldn't get out. And they've been there for the last two and a half years. And um, Police Awaken is, you know, the goal of Police Awaken is, and I think it's just brilliant. We all sit around all the time and go, what can we do? We feel helpless. Well, Steve has created this kind of um, congregation of people around the world, literally. He wasn't just content to go Let's do something in South Africa. Um, and it's really an international advocacy group. And they do, they work with community projects through golf. They will hold uh, events and roundtable discussions where they bring in experts to try to solve the problems that they think the community should be responsible for solving. As opposed to waiting for the government to take care of business, Steve said, okay, we can't do that. We've got to get the people involved who are being directly affected by hunger, poverty, um, gender violence, really, really horrible things. And so he started Police Awaken, and the Celebrity and Living Legends Tour was an outgrowth of that. They've had amazing events. Bill told me about the one in South Africa, and he was completely blown away. So that's, that's kind of the background of Steve and Police Awaken. Uh, when the invasion of Ukraine happened, 
without any surprise on my part. Steve called me and he said, uh, I'm getting stuff together. And again, you know, we're all sitting here and we see these images on TV. We see what's going on. I don't have to tell anybody what all of it is about and what it means, but Steve decided to try to organize something. He said, I know you're going to think I'm crazy. I said, I don't think anything you do is crazy, man. Uh, but he said, uh, uh, and this was a couple of weeks ago, he said, I want to do something on March 24th, which is the anniversary of the one-month one anniversary of uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine. He said, and I want to try to get a global moment of prayer at exactly the same time around the world. Uh, and I won't go into what he's trying to do in South Africa in terms of cities and lights on buildings and all kinds of stuff. Uh, but basically, the idea is that at noon Eastern time um, on Thursday, March 24th, he's asking people in the game uh, and people not in the game, but obviously all the golfers who want to uh, somehow feel connected to Sorry. Okay. Sorry, a little bit of a comment. Um, to all kind of gather in a moment or however long you want to make it of spirit and togetherness. Um, in prayer, if that's what you believe, in thought, in meditation, in just stopping, closing your eyes, however you choose to do it uh, at noon Eastern on Thursday and try to just harness the power of what most of us believe in, which is love and togetherness and peace. And that uh, that would start at noon on Thursday, the 24th, and then for another week after that uh, to participate um, in any way they can. But you can go and play golf and through the, uh, the great sites that Steve has created and uh, I'm going to give them to people. If people will go to these sites and read about what you can do, you can actually sign up. Uh, and this is, he's been working on this for years. And you know this, Chris, uh, when, when, you know, I kind of started getting in touch with you and you started being in touch with Steve to see the work that they've done on, uh, the, the website is please and it's T-L-E-A-C-E hyphen awaken. Dot org. That's the website, and you can find out all the information on everything they're doing. Uh, they have a Facebook page, um, which is at the, the Facebook page, sorry, is Please Awaken World, and you can find out everything they're doing there. Uh, and for that week, when you go and play golf, you can connect with other golfers around the world. And I, I know that Steve and Lalita both through their work and who they are, are really firm believers in the power that this all holds for everybody if we do it all together. So um, through Please Awaken, as uh, it used to be when the Celebrity and International Living Legends Tour started, it was pretty much for um, PGA pros around the world, teaching pros, celebrities, uh, sports people, actors, to kind of challenge each other in these matches and you could get a rank and compete in these world events, which was sadly cut short by the pandemic, but are going to reopen again in 23. 
and you're able to compete against people, um, play golf wherever you choose, challenge them, get ranking points, and then if you do well enough, you're able to play in these uh, continental events, which are pretty amazing. That's the one that Bill and Dennis in South Africa. Um, so anyway, if you go to the Please Awaken World on Facebook, you can find out about the upcoming week starting on Thursday. Uh, and on they have a great golf app, too, where you can register. Amateurs can now join uh, the Please Awaken Golf World, and, and you can sign up, register. It's really easy. Use your handicap. Uh, it's a modified Stableford system. My wife and I have both challenged other friends of ours uh, in California. Uh, our great friend, Lon McCarron, who I think you also know, Chris, uh, who's the voice of poker on ESPN. Lon has been helping out a tremendous amount, and we challenge him all the time. And uh, Dennis and Bill and my actor friend, Mark McClure, who was Superman, uh, Jimmy Olsen and all the Superman movies. And you can compete against these people and others. And there's so many uh, great sports personalities and actors that are on the police who can uh, the website for that, if you want to join, is PleaseGolf, P-L-E-A-C-E, golf.world. So all of it together, Chris, um, I think what we're all, like I said at the beginning, what we're all doing is we're sitting around going, what can we do? Oh, and one other thing, and I'm so glad I remembered this. Um, Steve has set up, and this really got me too, you know, I'm excited to listen to Jim. Gallagher and, and his stories. John Happy's great. Your guests are great. But Jim, you mentioned their connection uh, as a teaching family and through the PGA. Uh, Steve told me something that really kind of got me deeply, and that is that he's, he's connected um, with the Golf Federation of Ukraine and the PGA in Ukraine. And wow. he said they need donations really badly because Think about this. While we talk about golf and we play golf and we kind of go on, and I know we all think about the situation, but what he's done is he's uh, made it possible to start donating. He said that the Golf Federation of Ukraine is now a disaster relief fund. It's just amazing to me. And he said many of the men and women who uh, work through the Golf Federation of Ukraine are now on the front line. And fight. And so the fact that he's been able to set up, um, if you go to the uh, Please Awaken World on Facebook, is the place to go. And he has put together a great list of places that people can donate. Um, I've looked at all of them. I've made donations. And he's vetted everybody. So you don't have to worry about, is my money really going where it needs to go? Um, it's, it's a wonderful thing that Steve has done to give us a chance to the game. Uh, to be able to really feel like at least we're sending some support their way. All of that is mind blowing. You know, kudos yeah. to Steve and, and, and kudos to you for how deeply involved you've gotten and for getting me involved and, and for the things that Steve has done for, and I, you know, you sort of mentioned it a little bit about the challenges that Steve has had down there in South Africa, but mm-hmm. he's in a challenging environment or, or world or however you want to look at it down there in South Africa to be able to try to get things done. So he's had to fight through, let's just call it red tape, in order to get things done. And then to be able to reach out to the folks in Ukraine as as that country, and I feel so horrible 
for the Ukrainian people for what they're having to go through and deal with and uh, the horrors that they are seeing on, a, on an hourly basis. But to be able to get to the Gulf Federation to set up um, relief fund for the people there on top of the challenges he's having just being able to get out of South Africa. I mean, unbelievable right. what is being done and the work that's being done. So that's all fantastic stuff, Mitch. Yeah, and I, I, he's, he is really, literally, I don't think he sleeps. I've gotten calls from him at three in the morning, for, at noon, at five in the morning. He, he and Lalita both and their team, uh, they just, they don't stop. And you mentioned these things they've done around South uh, Africa. He's been involved in the fight against apartheid. His, he got a dual citizenship during the late last years of apartheid directly from Nelson Mandela. Um, he, he is a towering, in my mind, a towering figure in terms of somebody who's doing things to change people's lives for the better. And it's the deepest, deepest of problems that he deals with. And he has such 100%. joy doing it, Chris. He has joy doing it. He's just positive and, and, uh, that you know me and I know you and that way of life and way of looking at things is he's just an amazing human. So I think if all of us and if you go on these places and find things, uh your listeners, if you find things that you relate to and you want to get involved in, share it with your friends. You know, it's a it's a way to give back something to Steve and his team for what they're doing to help people. Hundred percent. Mitch, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show to Tell us all about this. Um, I had the opportunity to listen to you on uh, Backspin Golf with your brother Matthew on uh, on Sunday, um, telling the same story. But we can't tell that story enough and get it out to en- enough ears to let them know what Steve's doing and, and what this organization is trying to do. You're right. A lot of times as, as we watch this horror unfold in front of us, we wonder what can we do. And there are a lot of great organizations like the Red Cross out there doing great things to help the people in Ukraine. But for those of us that are, you know, near and dear to the game of golf and think, you know, hey, what can we do? How can we get involved? Uh, what are some other ways that we can get in? This is perfect. And I thank you for taking the time to share it all with us. Oh, Chris, I, I love you, man. And I'm, I'm obviously really grateful. I'm going to give them one more time. The Facebook please. group is Please, please Awaken World. That's P-L-E-A-C-E, Awaken World. And the golf app is pleasegolf.world. And uh, like I said, I love you, man. You're the best. Uh, I love you right back. Thank you so much for being patient and coming on the show and, and sharing this story again. So many other things that we need to get into on a happier note. Hopefully next time it's more about that and less about uh, the horrors that we're seeing in our world. Yep. I'd love to anytime you know that. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care, Mitch. That is the great Mitch Lawrence. And folks, this is, and, and we try, we try to make this a great place to come and, and hear positivity and, and happy stories. But, um, we're all watching what's going on in Ukraine and to have Steve Jacobs and this organization out there doing great things. And like I say, the struggles of being able to do things outside of South Africa sometimes are really hard. Uh, but he's doing it. And again, it's please, P-L-E-A-C-E, awaken.org. And please awaken world. Go on there. See how you can get involved. See how you can donate. See how you can play golf and have that be part of something that is bigger than all of us as well. 
great stuff from Mitch, and I look forward to catching up with him on happier terms uh, here real soon. Okay, before I get to my next guest, John Mahaffey, I want to talk to you about our new friends over at Adele Golf. Have you been custom fit for your putter or even for your wedges? Adele Golf is the industry leader in scoring club fitting. Their putter fitting system is the most complete putter fitting system in golf. The EAS line of putters can get your putting dialed in. Also check out their swing match system wedges with weight adjustability to make sure your wedges are truly fit to your swing. Go to AdeleGolf.com and schedule your fitting today. I also want to give a shout out to our friends over at Squares Golf. Are you like me, always considering new golf equipment, maybe a new driver? Well, let me reset your thinking because I discovered Squares Golf Shoes. The patented Squares Toe provides balance, stability, and a wider base for increased connection to the ground, effectively increasing your swing speed by 2.2 miles per hour and an average of 9 yards of distance. Independent testing proves it. That's right. It's proven in science. Go to squares.com, get the Squares 30-day money-back guarantee, and use promo code DISTANCE to get $20 off. Remember, distance comes from swing speed, and swing speed comes from your connection to the ground. Squares, the distance golf shoe. All right, now back with me here on Next on the T is 1978 PGA champion John Mahaffey. Let me remind you about John's background. He's from Kerrville, Texas, played his college golf at the University of Houston, where he was named a first-team All-American in 1969 and 70. John won the individual title at the 1970 National Championship, and he helped the Cougars win back-to-back national championships in 69 and 70. He earned his degree in psychology, and he was inducted into their Athletics Hall of Fame in 1976. John turned pro in 1971. He won 10 times on the PGA Tour, including the 1978 PGA Championship, when he came from seven strokes back with 14 holes to play to win in a playoff. He also won the 1986 Players' Championship. He won once out on the Champions Tour. He was a member of the 1979 Ryder Cup team. In 1983, he was inducted into the Texas Golf Hall of Fame. He's written a couple of wonderful books. The first one, Hogan's Boy, A, a Journey in Golf plus a new mystery novel titled Shafted. Both you can get out there on Amazon.com. John has become a wonderful friend of the show, and I'm very excited he is back with me again tonight here on Next Down the T. Hey, John, thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, Chris, great to be back with you. Tell you what, you guys are awesome. (laughs) I love you. I appreciate you. John, we're just a little over a week north of this year's Players' Championship, which, like I said, you won back in 1986. And when I was looking back at that leaderboard, it was a veritable who's who of PGA legends near the top. I mean, Larry Mize either had the outright lead or a share of it for the first three rounds, but there were guys lurking like Tim Simpson, Tom Kite, Hal Sutton, Raymond Floyd, Jim Thorpe, Lee Trevino, Lanny Watkins, Payne Stewart, and Bob Murphy. The, those guys were all right there. Talk about having to chase down Mize, particularly over the last few holes, and what it was like trying to outdistance yourself from a leaderboard like that. Well, the the thing that helped me more than anything else is I had a terrific round on Saturday. I shot 65 to even get close. Uh, and then coming into Sunday, uh, it's a funny thing. I was sitting in the locker room with a buddy of mine. You know, he said, I, I got a feeling. And I said, what's that? He said, well, you know, what are you going to do if you get to the 18th hole 
and you're tied for the lead, you're one back or one up. What are you going? What kind of tee shot? And you got the honor. What are you going to do? And I said, well, you know, that whole kind of hard, that's a hard driving hole for me because my go-to shot is a little low cut, you know, kind of tee it low and, and just hit a little bullet out there and a little left to right shot. But if I really wanted to make a statement, I'd step up there and hit a big draw. So lo and behold, uh, Larry Mize ran into a little trouble coming in. I think he made a bogey or a double at, at 16 and I made a birdie. I knocked it on it too. And he missed a, a makeable birdie putt at 17 and we ended up being tied. Uh, going to the 18th tee, and uh, I remember sitting there, and I, I looked over at my caddy, and I, I always teed off on the right side of the tee box because that was, you know, it helped me hit the fade. And I went over to the left side, looked at me kind of funny, and I uh, set up with it, and then I kind of closed my stance a little bit, and I kind of <laughs> said a little prayer. I hit the most beautiful draw <laughs> I've ever hit in my life. It was a hot bullet draw that went around that corner and down there in miles because it hit a down slope and caught that and ran down there. Only had a six iron and six iron in there against the wind. So, uh, I know that uh, seems like an awful long club for guys that they had sand wedge in there today, but that was a pretty big drive at the time and it came at the perfect time. Probably the best drive I've ever hit in competition. And John, one of the things that I thought was very telling and I, it, when I watched, went back and watched the video, I mean, you and Larry Myers had two testers, three, four foot to win or go into a playoff and he putted first and missed you drained yours. And, um, when his putt missed, you, you didn't have any expression change whatsoever. It looked like you were, you were focused. You put the ball down, you, you lined it up, stepped up, rolled it in. Do you remember what was going through your mind when his putt missed? And now all of a sudden you got about a three footer to win this thing. Well, the only thing that went through my mind is I've been here before. Uh, I had to make a putt, to, not a little bit longer putt, but a putt to win the PGA in a playoff at Oakmont from about 12 feet. And, you know, I just got up there and I said, all you do here is you pick the line and hit the best putt you can hit. You know, don't take a whole lot of time and now think yourself. Just go ahead, hit a nice solid putt. And I put it right on the spot that I wanted to hit it on and went right in the middle. No big deal. Threw my hat, but it didn't make it into the water like Jerry Payton went to. So <laughs> I got to save the visor. But no, I, I didn't really think about it too much. I don't think there was much to think about. You know, it's, uh, you know, this is, this is why you play golf and these are the situations that you work your whole life to get into. So it's, uh, it's wonderful to live, to live them and to also to come out on top from time to time. It's pretty cool. John, like you mentioned a moment ago. Mize bogeyed 14, 15, and 16, missed a makeable birdie putt on 17, and obviously bogeyed then again on 18. Could you feel it starting to slip away from him? And did you think, you know what, hey, if I just play some solid golf here over the last three or four holes, I might have an opportunity to still win this thing, obviously like you did there on 18. Well, the thing is, Chris, again, going back to Oakmont in 1978, I was seven shots back with 14 holes to play, and I saw what happened there. Watson made a few mistakes. I started, I got a really hot putter and I hit, I was hitting the ball very well. Uh, I made one miscue on 16. I three putted, but other than that, played really good golf. So I figured, and I was playing well after shooting 65 at Sawgrass on, on Saturday. Uh, I think I was under par for the day. And, uh, you know, I, I was just kind of hanging around and, and then all of a sudden I didn't think about what was happening to him, but I thought about, you know, uh, just trying to birdie. Trying to birdie in, I hit a big drive at, at 16, and it just caught the the first cut of the rough on the right. And uh, I hit a four and knocked it on the green. It came out of there like a bullet. So, and then when he made bogey, I made birdie. I two putted for birdie. So that kind of that kind of got the juices running. And then you get to 17, 
and you're standing up there, and uh, I know they stole my line this year, by the way. I got to tell you that. Some guys were talking about it's the shortest par five on tour. I said that all the way back <laughs> in in, uh, in in 86. I, I mean, before that, when we first started playing soccer. I mean, yeah, at uh, TPC. Anyway, you know, you can hit a really good shot there, and you can catch a gust of wind one way or the other, or it dies down, and, you know, you, you're sunk. So, you know, you just try, I tried to put it in the middle of the green and fade it and it didn't fade too much. And Larry hit a beautiful shot, uh, right after play. And, uh, I, I was lucky enough to two putt and then he missed. And, uh, we know what happened on 18, but, uh, wonderful memories. You know, you hate to see that happening to a buddy, but he got his back when he won the Masters a little bit down the road. John, to your point about what can happen there on 17, we saw the winds howling this year in the third round, or at least on Saturday. Winds blowing 20 to 40 miles an hour. And I don't know if most people know this or not, but TPC Sawgrass is really just across the street from the ocean. So the winds can really come off the ocean and come and go. Did you ever play in conditions where the winds were blowing like that? And then you get up to the T on 17 and figure out what the heck am I going to hit here? Well, not necessarily on 17. One year over across the street, as you mentioned, uh, at Sawgrass, uh, I remember playing behind Hubert Green and I can't remember it seven or eight or one of the long par fours dead into the wind. And he had driver, driver, and he was just posing on his second driver and came up 20 yards short. So, I mean, wow. that's how hard I, I think Lanny might have won that year at, at, over there. But, um, you know, you just kind of, a lot of times you just hit the best shot you can hit. Uh, try to keep it under the wind if you can, but, uh, you know, the smartest shot. And uh, even, even if you hit the, hit the perfect shot there, I think that's, uh, that hole is awful, penal. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> John, going back a couple of years, 1981, as we all start to look ahead to the Masters now, you finished tied for eighth that year. You were three strokes behind Tom Watson going into the final round. What do you remember about that tournament and being right in the thick of it then? Thanks a lot, Chris. That's that's one of my worst nightmares, okay? <laughs> that and losing two I'm sorry. back to back. I'm glad you brought that up, though. You remember what happened to Ed Snead there that one year? I do. Where he bogeyed 16, 17, and 18? Well, uh-huh. I had something similar happen, but the, the deal with me was, and I thought that I would be able to control uh, my emotions a little bit more, not get so hyped up, at, at, you know, having won a, a PGA uh, three years prior to that. But I think Augusta has a special kind of kind of pressure that uh, you just, you know, to win that, the first major of the year and stuff like that, it was just, it was overwhelming. Anyway, I was playing very well. And I come into 16. I just birdied 15. I come into 16. And, uh, I remember hitting a six iron and, and that pen, pen was in the back. And, uh, I flew it over the green and, uh, way back, a little bit further back than where Tiger chipped it in from and didn't get that up and down. Uh, drove it great at 17, hit a great shot right at the flag again at 17, right over the green where you don't want to be. And it, it's all adrenaline. I mean, this is all just stuff that, that I think I'm under control, but I'm not. And plus, I'm hitting it right on the butt. Uh, so I bogey there, 18, drive it right down the, the right side of the fairway, great angle at the flag, fly it right over the flag, catches the down slope, runs into the crowd. So I bogey the last three holes to finish eight and didn't hit a bad shot. It's just, it's just I think, that being able to control your emotions, emotions coming into those final holes there, it's really hard to do. It's hard to it's really hard to win the Masters. The, the way these guys handle that, it's amazing to me. To be multiple winners there, incredible. So how do you do that, John? 
how do you recognize in yourself that the adrenaline is starting to really get going? You're probably going to hit this club longer than you normally do. How do you control that, your breathing, the pressure, all of that sort of stuff to maintain what you're doing and still give your chance to win the golf tournament? Well, I thought I did. That's the whole thing. I probably should hit. I normally would have hit a five iron at 16, but I hit six. So I'm, I'm thinking the adrenaline's there. I didn't, I, seven never, never entered my mind, you know, and I, I hit, uh, I hit at what, a seven iron at 17 or six, eight iron at 17, where I normally would have hit a six, a six or a hard seven. And it went over the greens. Same thing at 18. So I don't know. Uh, uh, at that, I just think to me that the, the pressure that you put on yourself there. And, and I, I think a lot of it went back to, to Ben Hogan, uh, years ago when I first went to Augusta and he gave me a little chart of how to, how to play the golf course and stuff. It really felt like I had a good chance to win there because I had a variety of shots that I could play. And I was, I was a good putter and I had a good short game. And, uh, you know, I always felt like that I should have a chance and here was my best chance and I got, I got too excited and I don't know how you control that. I really don't. I think, I think it happens to everybody, but there's certain players that are, that really are, they thrive on that. Uh, I think Hogan did. I think Nicholas did. I think Tiger did. Uh, it's called the zone and, uh, I, I didn't stay in it long enough. A lot of guys stayed in it quite a while, some of them for a career and, uh, they were just, they were able to, to, to take everything in stride. I didn't get ahead of myself. That's normally what happens. You start getting ahead of yourself. Then you start feeling sorry for yourself, things like that. I didn't do any of that. So I thought about it later on, obviously. And I didn't, I don't, I didn't figure I did anything wrong. I just hit it too good. John, let's move on to some happier memories. Among your 10 <laughs> wins Please. On, <laughs> on the PGA Tour. Was the 85 Texas Open? It's coming up here on the tour schedule next week. And as a guy from Texas, that has to rank pretty high on the tournaments that you wanted to win. What was it like getting that win for you? Uh, it was awesome. I tell you, winning the PGA, winning the players was terrific. I mean, that, those are, those are career changers, but something that meant more to me than probably any other tournament, uh, was to win that. And I'll tell you why. When I was a kid, uh, only been playing golf about, oh, maybe two or three years. Uh, I was 13, 14 years old. My uncle got a couple of tickets to go to the Texas Open at Oak, at Oak Hill. All right. So we go and when we get there, uh, he says, okay, so who do you want to go follow? I said, I want to follow our Arnold Palmer. He's my hero. Now this is before I ever knew anything about Ben Hogan or anything or read his book or anything like that, but I read Golf Digest and all the other books and watched Hogan. I mean, watched, uh, Palmer and everything and you know the big charge and all that kind of stuff and hitching up his pants and I thought that man this guy hung the moon I still do by the way I think he did and uh so I we get there and my uncle you know kind of rolls his eyes like oh my gosh and you know the people are about 10 thick that one going in those it's a narrow golf course so trying to get to see Arnold was almost impossible but he played with two really interesting players he played with Gene Littler and Chichi Rodriguez that day so we stayed out there pretty much the whole day. And it was, I mean, it was terrific. I was, if I wasn't hooked before, I got hooked there. And, uh, I found out, or he found, my uncle found out that Chi was going to put on an exhibition at Pecan Valley, which was not very far away from there, uh, where Julius Boros won the PGA later on in his career. And, uh, so, uh, it was a lot at, at, at night. They had the back nine was light. 
So we went had some Mexican food, and which we both loved, and then went over there and and watched this. So now I was totally hooked. Watching T.T. Rodriguez about my size or a little smaller, just being able to bust it out there, I I, I was totally hooked, and uh, and fell in love with the Tillinghast design of Oak of Oak Hills. And uh, I remember that that particular tournament in uh, coming down the final hole. I remember the uh, 13th hole at, at Oak Hills is really a tough par three. And the wind was howling that really gusting that day. Tough to figure. Going in and out of all the oak trees and stuff and hard to judge. And uh, there's water on the left all the way down the left side at, at 13. And it, it was about 215 yards and wind was blowing left to right. And I hit a hook right at the hole. Uh, and and it just it hung up there in the wind and stuff, and it, it would just end up about five feet. And I made it for birdie. So then I got a 14, and I, I'm kind of looking at the leaderboard, but I'm a little back, and I uh, hit it close at uh, 14 and miss it. And as, as I'm walking to 15, I hear this guy in the crowd said, I told you he's choking. He's not going to finish. He's not gonna, there's no way he can win this golf tournament. And I thought, really? Ooh. All right, watch this. So 15 to par five, I'm 30, 15, 30, 16, lift it out on 17 and hit it three feet at 18 to tie Jody Mutt. So that guy kind of gave me, a, gave me a shot in the arm, got me a little ticked off enough to get me to focus again, you know, and uh, so I, I tied with Jody. And uh, this is the sad part of it. We both part of the first hole. We go to number one uh, was where the, the playoff started. And uh, we both hit irons off the tee and then wedges in. We didn't make birdie. And number two, he had the honor. And number two at, at Oak Hills is a little bitty short par three downhill, probably eight or eight or nine iron, seven iron at the winds in your face. And the, the whole location was right on the front right, right over a bunker. Probably one of the toughest hole locations to get close to. And Jody hit this beautiful shot in there. And a gust of wind catches it and buries in the top left of this bunker. I mean, very deep. So I just, I'm trying to, I put it in the middle of the green and the wind catches it a little bit and I'm in it about 15 feet. Well, I didn't get the putt for a while because Jody left it in the bunker, then blasted it out, uh, over the green, tipped it back and it was still away. And I, uh, I two putted for my, for my par and, and I, you hate to win that way because it was just, it was an unlucky break for him. Uh, but I thought he was one of, one of the best players we had around for quite a long time with Jody Mudd. John, let's move along to the 1979 Ryder Cup team, a year you guys won 17-11. I'm always interested to hear the perspective. Having played in under a lot of pressure in the majors and probably in that Texas Open because you wanted to win it so bad, talk about what the Ryder Cup pressure is like compared to other tournaments. Well, it was by one and only, sadly, but I, I, I loved having the opportunity to do it. I remember... Uh, Playing Lee Elder and I were playing the the alternate shot, and uh, we had our, our plan all mapped out and everything else. And he was going to hit the first tee shot, and then it, it worked out good for the par fives that way. He felt so. We get up there, and, uh, and I'm pretty nervous. They play the Star Spangled Banner, and I'm, I mean, I've never represented my country before. And I'm scared, and and so, but I'm up there to give him uh, some support and everything else. And he walks over to me, he says, "I can't hit this tee shot." <laughs> and I said, "What?" He said, I can't hit this tee shot. I said, Lee. He said, no, honestly, I cannot hit this tee shot. I said, okay. My caddy's like 150, 200 yards down the fairway in the rough, you know, waiting. So I had to wave him back up. I hadn't even thought about this tee shot. So I get up there and, and I 
and I, and I hit this thing. I closed my ass going as hard as I could and nailed it right down the middle of the fairway. And the poor lead, still the nerves, he hit a bad second. We ended up bogeying the hole. And we never did really click uh, that whole day. And I think it was, it was probably not because he said that, just because it was the nervousness for both of us playing in our first uh, event. And then uh, we got we got beat. And uh, I played with Hale Irwin in my neck. Uh, better ball, I think it was, and uh, we got beat. So I wasn't a very good partner at that time. But I do remember uh, playing Brian Bourne, who beat Nicholas back to back in one of the Ryder Cups in the single. And uh, yeah, was it the singles? I think so. That's right. But anyway, back back to back. And uh, so I, I did beat him. So I got I got one point. So I didn't I didn't get stunk out of the whole thing. But I, it was it was wonderful thrill at the Greenbrier, and my parents were there. And, uh, you know, just one of those, one of those dreams that you have. And, uh, it was the, the thing that, that I loved the most about it was being able to, to represent our country and, and to do it so well. And that was the first time the Europeans played, by the way. So, uh, you know, that was sort of a, a hallmark kind of thing for the Ryder Cup, too. And in that event, like Billy Castro was the captain, but there were a lot of guys that were rookies just like you were in the Ryder Cup. I mean, Gil Morgan, Larry Nelson, Tom Kite, Andy Bean, Fuzzy Zeller, Lee Elder, and Mark Hayes, all Ryder Cup rookies. The only veterans of those kind of matches that you had on the team were Trevino, Irwin, and Lanny Watkins. That had to be tough having that many rookies. Who did you guys lean on for how to deal with what you were about to face? Well, I, I, think, I think most of us, uh, I never, never really thought about it, Chris. Honestly. I mean, we had some some team meetings and stuff. We played some practice rounds and stuff together. And, you know, there was never any bickering or anything else like that. And Billy came in and said, you know, he came up to me and said, uh, I'm going to have to sit you out a little bit because I, I just don't think you're on the top of your game. And, you know, I didn't have any issues with that. He was right, you know. And uh, so uh, I just felt like that uh, all these guys are on their way there. And all everybody was playing well. With, and I was playing okay, but not my best. And, uh, you know, you got Lanny in there and Lanny's the one, you know, he's raw, raw, and he's, I mean, he's tough. And, uh, and the other guys, I mean, Trevino. So, I mean, you had those guys that you could spend on. If you had any questions, you could ask them. But, uh, you know, it, uh, I never really thought about it that much. John, let's talk about your books, starting with the first one, Hogan's Boy, which, uh, I believe Sam Sneed used to refer to you as. Talk about uh, yeah. Talk about how you how you ended up with that name, how we stuck it on you, and then uh, what people are going to learn when they read the book. Well, I uh, I played uh, my rookie year. I played with Sam Snead at Sedgefield, which he'd won I don't know seven or eight times, whatever. And we played in the last round together, and I was nervous because I'd never played with him before. Uh, uh, so I walk up to the first tee and I introduce myself and. I said, Mr. Snead, I'm John Mahaffey. He said, no, you're not. You're Hogan's boy. I know who you are. And because the word had gotten around, Ben Hogan was my mentor and had been for a while. And um, people kind of, they didn't refer to me as that way. But then all the way through the round, he would say, uh, Sam would say something like, Hogan would never try that. Hogan couldn't do this. Hogan couldn't do that. You know, and uh, I mean, he played beautiful. I love the way he played. And who wouldn't? Uh, we end up tying for the tournament. That, that's how I, I got uh, I got the name for the book, Hogan's Boy. And 
when, later on, uh, J.C. Snead became a very good friend of mine when we were playing the senior tour. When I went to visit him in Virginia at his farm. He said, you want to go see Uncle Sam? I said, sure. So we went around the mountain to see Sam. And it was, sadly, it was, uh, he was pretty close to the time that he passed away. He wasn't in very good shape, but he jumped up off the couch when we came in through this, the screen door. And J.C. said, hey, hey, Uncle, he said, you remember this guy? He said, oh, hell, that's Hogan's boy. So, you know, I thought wow. that was pretty cool that he would remember all the way back to that. But uh, he took me down and showed me his basement where he had all the golf clubs he'd ever played with and all the Wilson bags and all the animals that he bagged in Africa. And, I mean, it was just my, my life was blessed on the tour with all the people that I knew and, and got to know and that helped me along the way and took me under their wing when they knew I was kind of struggling. So that was it, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Talk about your new mystery novel, Shafted. What inspired you to write that book? Well, you know, when you travel as much as we did, and uh, when we started flying and stuff like that and more international stuff, I got to where I like I liked mystery books. And uh, so I, I read these mystery novels and stuff like that, and I got to – and the whole thing about the tour, and even playing collegiate golf and stuff like that, when you play for a powerhouse like Houston, you're sort of in a fishbowl. I mean, everybody's watching you and stuff like that. So it's kind of a small fraternity you're in. And all the, you see all the things that happen around you. And uh, all these, by the way, all the things that happen in this book, I didn't do these. Okay, this is fiction. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I mean, uh, but, uh, you know, but but you have, and, and I'd, have, I'd be looking at something and somebody would uh, be going through this or that or whatever. And I'd say, I wonder, you know, if this is happening or that's happening. So all these scenarios started forming in my mind and I thought well I couldn't play golf anymore uh when I went to the golf channel uh and I worked with them because my hips and everything were so bad and had hip surgery but not to play golf to be able to walk and uh then I, I went uh, to the golf channel I had 15 great years learned a lot about television from a lot of wonderful people uh, Keith Hurston being one of them he's the guy that got me on the golf channel it was my first uh, producer that helped me immensely, uh, and also has been, uh, helpful in the book, uh, sort of deal about giving me some advice and so, so forth and so on. But anyway, I love the 15 years I did that. But then that, that kind of grew to the point where I, I'd had a, I didn't, I was tired of traveling. I'd done it since I was in college and, uh, I had an idea, that, you know what, maybe I can write this fiction, uh, fiction stuff. I majored in psychology. I minored in English. And, uh, you know, I wrote a book and only thing was I didn't realize the difference between writing fiction and nonfiction. Nonfiction is passive voice, so you don't have to create any action. When you have to go into active voice, it's a whole new ball game. And it's been, it's been a learning process that I have absolutely thoroughly enjoyed with the people that my editors and everything else that have helped me so much along the way. Uh, it's been great. And I, and I love writing. And uh, my first book is, is Shafted and it's, uh, it starts, it's about a guy that, that plays golf and he, he, uh, he falls for all the wrong things. He gets, uh, temptation takes over and stuff and, uh, he, he actually loses his cards and, uh, and he has to figure out a, and his manager steals his money and different things like that. So who is involved with the mafia? Yeah, uh, I don't want to give the whole book away, but it's, it's the guy has to reinvent himself, and he has to try to help his family, and it becomes something that uh, they start a company uh, called Nemesis, and 
Uh, I've written five books now in the Nemesis series. My second book has just gone to my editor. The third and fourth book are written. The fifth is halfway wow. through. And, wow. oh, I tell you what, you know, uh, I, this COVID thing that we had that was horrible for everybody else, in a way, it really never affected me too much. I didn't get it, for one thing, or might have. I don't know. I had a mild case of something could have been. But anyway, I was going to write anyway. So, uh, and I, I've always done something passionately. If I really loved doing something, I went ahead and went at it 100%. And so I wrote these books and, uh, everybody always kind of said I was a pretty good storyteller, but, uh, you know, and the thing about writing books is that I, I found similar to, to playing professional golf and to trying to be the best at something that you can be is that, uh, you do pretty much the same thing. There are a lot of common factors. Like, you, you know, you have to assess the situation and evaluate the situation. You got to visualize and then create. So, I mean, these are things that weren't new to me, but it just sort of in a new, uh, a new way. It wasn't a golf shot. It was a scenario. And, uh, thing you write down, you say, but you learn from it. And, uh, you, and I had one, I had one editor that told me something that was really special. He said, first of all, you got soul of a writer, which, wow, which I thought nice. was great. And I, yeah. And I said, yeah. And, and I said, uh, Okay, so what happens if I have this thing called writer's block? He said, I don't think you ever will, but if you do, he says, sleep on it. I promise you, your, ter- your characters will tell you where to go. And I'm thinking like, right. You know, this guy wrote for Hollywood and everything. I'm thinking, this is so far. These guys are, you know, that's crazy. Guess what? It's not. <laughs> they do. <laughs> and uh, they become like family. They, I mean, the McCall family is my family. Trey McCall is I mean, that's my hero. That's that's the guy, you know. And, and he's he he did a lot of really bad things in his life, but uh, but he turned it around. Uh, and uh, karma is real in these books too. People who do bad things may meet a very bad end, and vice versa. People who do things get rewarded well. So, uh, but I think it's it's fun for me to write these things. Uh, it's it's fiction, but. Uh, I think they're entertaining. That's what I want to do. I've always sort of been in the entertainment business in a way. I used to imitate CT and, and Gary Player's voices and Henry Longhurst and stuff, you know, and when we, I did pro-am outings and different things. So, you know, and, and on the golf channel, you're entertaining. So, uh, right. I want my, I want, I want people to read these books to, you know, to get entertained. Uh, I think I keep their interest. I think I don't, they don't, they're not going to know who does what until the end. I'll tell you that. And I think they're going to be surprised. Ben Hogan was my mentor for 17 years. All right. And, uh, I learned a lot from Ben Hogan, a lot of things that he asked me not to share. And I promise made, promise kept. I'm not, I don't do that. But in these books, there's enough hints all the way through in some of the golf stuff that if people read close enough, I think, uh, they might get a little help with their golf game. Oh, there you go. Nice tease. Yeah. So, you know, uh, it's not, I, I, I'm not going to lay it out as this Ben Hogan secret. I, that's one thing that, <laughs> that's the one negative comment that I got out of Hogan's boy, that, uh, that journey and golf thing, that one guy wrote a negative thing. He says, I read the whole book and, and Mahaffey never told us, you know, what Hogan's secret was. Well, that, I'm not going to tell you what he told me, but I can hit around <laughs> enough that you ought to be able to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. 
John, before I let you go, let our listeners know, how can they pick up both of the books and then stay up to date with uh, all the great things you're doing? Well, uh, hogansboy.com is, is good, I mean, excuse me, hogansboy at comcast.com is a good way to do it. And, uh, I'm on Amazon. Uh, so all that kind of stuff, uh, that's our, that's how you get it. John, I can't thank you enough for coming back and being a part of the show. You're awesome, my friend. I love spending time with you. I hope you'll come back and join me again soon. Anytime you want me, partner. No problem. I appreciate that very much. John, take care, my friend. Stay safe. We'll catch up again soon. Okay. Thanks a lot, Chris. Have a good one. Thanks, John. You too. That's the great John Mahaffey. At Hogan's Boy is how you can follow him on social media as well. He's occasionally out there on Twitter. And then the book is fantastic. Can't wait to re-chat it. And there's some other questions I had for John. We just ran out of time. Hopefully, uh, I get the privilege of having him back on the show again, like I say, real soon. Before I get to my next guest, Jim Gallagher Jr., I want to remind you about our friends over at Two Under. Two Under Men's Performance Briefs have just released their new Spring and Summer 22 collections with fun, new, and exciting prints like the Freedom 2 and 3, Santa Fe, Tigers, Zebras, and Duckies. And their new exclusive Folds of Honor collection, where they donate 20% of all Folds of Honor sales proceeds to that cause. The patented Joey Pouch technology delivers maximum comfort, fit, and performance while preventing any unwanted skin-on-skin contact or chafing. Good for anything from the golf course, to the boardroom, to the bedroom. You can find these two underperformance briefs in over 4,000 golf pro shops nationwide, all Shields sports stores, all PGA Tour superstores, Golf Galaxy, Dillard's, and other fine retailers near you. You can also order them online at twounder.com. That's the number two, U-N-D-R.com. Two Under, performance in your pants. Use code NEXTT20, that's N-X-T-T-E-E-20, for a 20% discount on the Two Under website. All right, now joining me is Jim Gallagher, Jr. Let me remind you about some background on Jim. He's from Johnstown, Pennsylvania, just down the road from my hometown of Pittsburgh, but grew up over in Indiana. Played his college golf at the University of Tennessee, where he is the most decorated player in UT men's golf history. He led it all four years from 1980 to 1983. He was named the Volunteers Rookie of the Year in 1980, and he helped them win their very first SEC championship that season. Jim tied for fifth in that SEC championship tournament. In 1981, he won the Eastern Kentucky Invitational. He was named All-American in 1982 and All-SEC in 1980 and 82. In 1982, he also won the Indiana Amateur and was named the Team MVP. 1983 was a big season. He repeated as the Indiana Amateur Champion and added wins at the Indiana Open and Wildcat Invitational. Plus, he was presented with the team's Leadership Award. He played in the NCAA tournament in 1980, 81, and 82 and helped the Vols to a 6th, 7th, and 21st place finishes. He was inducted into the Tennessee Sports Hall of Fame in 1995. He turned pro in 1983 and joined the PGA Tour in 1984. He won five times out on the regular tour at the 1990 Greater Milwaukee Open, twice in 93 at the Anheuser-Busch Classic and the Tour Championship, which was played that year out at the Olympic Club. He won twice again in 1995 at the Greater Greensboro Open and the FedEx St. Jude Classic. He was a member of the victorious 1993 Ryder Cup and 94 President's Cup teams. He spent time as an analyst over on the Golf Channel, 
He's played some out on the Champions Tour, and I'm thrilled he is with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Jim, how are you, my friend? Thanks for coming on the show. I'm doing great. I uh, actually drove my daughter over to a Justin Bieber concert in Atlanta, so I'm sitting here waiting for them to get back, so I was not going to that. Uh, I'm a little too old for <laughs> Justin Bieber. <laughs> uh, Jim, I want to start our time tonight going back to the beginning because your father was a 50-year member of the PGA and president of the PGA three times, plus a PGA Professional of the Year in 73 and 78. Talk about growing up with a father who was so well-respected in the game. Yeah, it was so cool. My dad actually, uh, when I was born in Johnstown, as you mentioned, and we moved when I was a month old, but he actually caddied at Sunny Anna, where they have the Sunny Anna Amateur. That's kind of how he got his start into golf. Uh, worked in the steel mills and, and painted railroad cars and figured he didn't want to do that. And we moved to Indiana with the month old. And he didn't make very much money as an assistant. Three years later, became the uh, head pro at Machingo Misha, Marion, Indiana. And he was there 45 plus years. Uh, and he was just one of those hardworking pros. He believed in service. And it's amazing when you think of a guy that did the things, like you said, president of the PGA. Uh, he did all the things that you wanted to master yourself at or model yourself as as a club pro. And he was it. And he loved the PGA. That was his favorite, uh, organization to be part of. He was so proud of that. And I think that's probably why people ask me what major I would have wanted to win at PGA because of my dad uh, and being a longtime member. I know that the Masters and everything else is fantastic, but just knowing what it meant to my dad and, and what the PGA pros have done for me. Uh, growing up in Indiana, all those guys are fantastic. And I moved myself down to Mississippi and the club pros there were just as uh, welcoming. So Jay does a great job, uh, and yeah, like you said, a member forever. It was cool. Uh, you know, my mom actually, when I was probably two or three years old, she would check my grip because dad was working. You know, mom was there, uh, uh, for me and, and, and as much as anybody. And she's like every other mom took you to junior tournaments, spent that time with me. And, and my dad, as I got older and older, I, I really didn't want to know anything about the golf swing. I wanted him to tell me, you know, what do you want me to do? And, and I did it. And, you know, that may have hindered me later on. Uh, and I've, I've probably learned more about the golf swing now that I've worked for the golf channel, but he was just, a, I never saw my golf swing really until I was probably in college or almost out of college. You know, he was one of those guys that had a great eye. He stuck with the basics. And I think teaching and instruction sometimes, uh, today we get all worried about our golf swings and we forget about our grips, our setup, the basic stuff, uh, because it has to start somewhere. And that's one thing my dad always you know, really pushed us, uh, my brother and my sister and anyone he taught is, you know, get the right grip, get the setup. Uh, and, and the only couple of things I ever thought about was making a good turn and tempo. And we kept it pretty simple. Uh, and then I think that was the way I played it. I saw shots. I had a great imagination. I, I considered myself a field player and I really didn't want to know about mechanics. And I, I probably wished I would have, uh, when I did get struggling in my later on in my career to maybe figure out why those things were happening. Not thinking golf swing, but why, you know, a particular shot did this. Check your setup. Cause usually it gets back to your setup or something just minor. Uh, when you're, when you're pushing the ball or pulling the ball like that, it's a lot of times it gets back. Check your setup. That's the first thing you need to do. And that's one thing he always stressed to me. And Jim, your wife, Sissy, your sister, Jackie, mm -hmm. your brother, Jeff, they've all been touring professionals and looking back to 1990 with you know, the success that the Gallagher family has had in the game, you guys were awarded the Jack Nicholas Golf Family of the Year Award. Had to be a huge throw for you guys. 
Oh my gosh, that was such a cool that was such a cool award to think that we could you know, here's a bunch of kids growing up in a little bit of town of Marion, Indiana and just all you know, that's the cool part of that award and, and knowing that, you know, Jack Nichols' name is on it, of course. Uh and it was. It was very honoring and uh I always remember when we got the call and dad was so proud. I think that's the thing. You know, and I've had the that won the state am and my son plays, my other daughter you know, it's just watching them play and knowing how proud I am to see how they've had success. I can't imagine what my dad and mom were thinking. Here's the people who grew up in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, steel mill town, and moved to Indiana on basically an ad he saw in a magazine for an assistant pros job. And to see in 1990, like you said, when the uh, golf family of the year, it just it was a special time for us and something we'll always remember. And Jim, as a kid growing up in Indiana, how did you go from there to playing your college golf at Tennessee? That's a great question. Uh, you know, I, I kind of felt like I had to get south because, you know, in Indiana, basketball was king. And I was one of those kids who wanted to play for Marion High School. You know, our arena held 7,000 people. I wanted to play in front of all those people. But that dream kind of quit quickly end in 10th grade after they won two state championships. Uh I wasn't quite good enough, and and, uh, and it, it allowed me to focus in on golf, and I think that was the beauty of it all, uh, to think that you grew up there and, and were able to, to live that dream. And I, I just look back and just, I've been a blessed person, and things fall into place for me. Uh, but it, it is, it's amazing when you look at the journey and how that started uh, in Marion, Indiana. And, you know, I just, in the wintertime, I played basketball. And I, and I think that's the thing for the listeners out there, your kids want to play other sports, they should. Uh, if they get to seventh, eighth, ninth grade, they can maybe play one a season, but they should play all the sports. I think it helps so much in golf. It did me, uh, and it taught me. And I think that's why when you, when you see the Ryder Cup and, and you're seeing now the NCAA on TV and golf channels covering it, it's team events and we don't play a lot of team events. So if you're not a member of an, another sport, you don't learn how to play as a team. And I think those things are seeing a lot more players on the PGA Tour, the LPGA, that have played other sports. And, and that was the cool part growing up is, is being able to do that. And, and then all of a sudden, Dad and I went on a recruiting trip, and we I think we went to South Carolina. We looked at a couple places, and I just went to Knoxville and fell in love with it. Uh, they were playing Army. Army hadn't won a game in several years, and there's 90-some thousand screaming folks in there. And I'm saying, I've been to Notre Dame games, and they're fantastic. But I got to be part of this. And I knew it was a place that I could play. Their golf team wasn't anything special. Uh, they played a different golf course every day, which I like to do. I hated the practice. I loved to be able to play different golf courses. And, and it was a great move for me. I get to play in the Southeastern Conference. And as you mentioned, we won the SEC my freshman year with a bunch of kids that nobody ever heard of. Uh, and that was the cool part. We had some great teams there. Uh, and they've got good teams there now. And I just think it was a cool place for me to keep moving south, and I had to learn how to play in Bermuda. I hadn't played in Bermuda much. And that was a big uh, change for me as well. But it was four years. I'll always remember it. It was fun. Uh, and, and, you know, the dream was always to play the PGA Tour. But my biggest goal was to graduate in four years, get my degree. Uh, and that's the thing I'm probably the most proud of is, is I spent those four years. I worked hard, graduated on time, and uh, went on to the PGA Tour. So I did the things the right way. Uh, and it wasn't easy. I mean, now I don't know if I could play college golf. It's a full-time job for these kids, working out in the morning, going to class. I mean, it's, you know, 15, 16 hours of their day are already taken. They barely have time to sleep. And it's just so much different now than, than when I play. 
And Jim, speaking of things that you have to be proud of, 1995, you get inducted into the Tennessee Sports Hall of Fame, plus you win the FedEx St. Jude over in Memphis by rolling in a 10-15 footer on the last hole to win that golf tournament. Take us through what, you know, what have to be what I would think would be two of the most thrilling moments of your sports life right there in Tennessee. Yeah, you know, the coolest part is, is, is the, the FedEx more than, we, and I'm not, I'm not downgrading it. It's fantastic. But we played the game because we loved it. We didn't do it to be in the Hall of Fame. But the thing that probably stood out more than anything is that we could FedEx and the story is people can go online and look it up. A little girl named Lindsay Gilmer was from my hometown in Greenwood, Mississippi. And I think she was about eight or seven or eight, maybe nine at the time. And uh, they went to church with us and they're on the porch and she, she and her mom came over and I think this was about March, and they said that she had come down with leukemia. And I mean, you're thinking, I've got two young kids at home, and you're seeing here's this little child that has leukemia, and, and I don't know, good Lord put it on my heart. And I said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. If you're going to St. Jude's, I'm going to win that tournament in the summer. I promise you I'm going to win that tournament. Thinking nothing about it and going through, and I get there that week, and it's just I had a peace and calm over me that whole week. And... Sunday, I had a decent lead, and I remember going to Bobby Hall, who's the local writer, and I said, you can't write this unless I win. And I haven't told anybody this, but I dedicated this, if I win, to Lindsey Gilmer, and I told him the story. And I had a pretty good lead going to the back nine, and I made, uh, I think I made double at uh, 12, bogey 13, and I'm leaking oil so bad, and I'm just like, dude, if you blow this for this little girl, you know, and on and on and on, I finally settled myself down, and when I made that putt, about 10 feet on the last hole, ran around. I was so excited. I high five. And I got to the ceremony, and I'm just bawling, and everybody's looking at me like, why are you crying? And then I told the story. Uh, so it was a very special moment for me, only two hours from where I've lived for you know over half my life, and the win there in the state of Tennessee where I you know went to school on the other side of the state. But to win that in, in that little girl who's now doing great, got two kids, is doing fantastic. And the neat part of the end of that story is, that fall when they told her she was in remission, uh, Disney World, PGA Tour, we hosted PGA Tour inside the PGA Tour from Disney World. And we flew, they flew them down and they took their whole family for that trip. So, wow. uh, that was the coolest part of that whole story. And if you go on, it's online. You can find it and it tells that story and it'll make you cry. I mean, I got kind of compared just talking about it and she's in her thirties and doing fantastic. And that's the great thing about St. Jude hospital right there two hours from where i live uh the great stories that come out of that but uh, that that to me was as much memorable and that was my last win uh and it, you know everybody says wasn't it awesome and, and it was and i remember you know what excuse me so what'd you do after you ate i said well the kids and i went to the drive through they wanted chicken nuggets we got a hamburger and we drove home and that was our celebration <laughs> uh you know and then you know the next week we're going off to the next tournament but it was just so cool uh and, and I get chills thinking about it anytime. And I haven't really got to call the tournament much there. But when I do walk on that 18th green, I just have that memory of me making that putt. And I just see it over and over and over in my brain. And it's just uh, things like that. All that hard work that you put in and, and the time when you're wondering, is it really worth it? You know, putting in this time as a kid and putting this time in in college. And it pays off on something like that. And then to touch somebody's heart like that. Not that I had the power. I had nothing to do with me. The good Lord blessed you know, me with the talent to be able to pull that off. And it just turned out to be a great story, but uh, yeah, yeah. what what a cool, cool, cool ending for me. Yeah. What a fantastic story. 
Jim, just a couple more before I let you go, and I want to go back to your win at the Tour Championship in 93. It was played that year at the Olympic Club. You opened the tournament by setting the course record shooting 63, and that's an incredibly difficult golf course to go shoot 63 on. What do you remember about that round? Uh, you know, the funny thing about that, I played in the USAM, I think it was 1980, and I shot 87 on that same golf course. <laughs> I think it was my sophomore year in college, and I almost quit golf over it. And I got there, and I remember walking in there thinking, God, this is the hardest golf course I've ever played in my life. And I think I bogeyed maybe 11 or 12. I think it was 12 I made bogey. And I got in there. I was just kind of in there. As they said, the zone. I'm playing with Gil Morgan. And thing I know, I walk in and say, I just shot 63. I mean, I, I couldn't have gone out there with two golf balls and played best ball and shot 63. Uh, but that was just so cool to do that. And, and I walked in the media room, and I said, well, I've approved you know, 24 shots from my last time I played here. Of course, I had to go back and look at it. But, you know, sitting there on 18, I'll never forget, we were sitting there behind the green, and Greg Norman's in the fairway, and he's bought, and he hits it over the green, and I'm thinking to myself, there's no way he can get it up and down. Uh, and he didn't, and I ended up winning the tournament. And my wife was home, pregnant with my son, Thomas, and my oldest daughter, I think, was two at the time. And I remember standing there, and I saw the video, and Judy Rankin actually interviewed me after, who I just love Judy Rankin. And she interviewed me afterwards, and next to me was one of the tour officials from Mississippi, my good friend Ben Nelson, who both of us just went in the Mississippi Golf Association Hall of Fame this last week. And I got nobody to hug, so I hugged Ben on national TV. <laughs> uh, and it was like, like, well, Ben, I'm going to hug you and anybody else. So we hugged and whatever. And I told the story in about, I don't know, a couple, you know, 95, I'm sitting there at Greensboro, and... He's on the range with me, and I went again. I hug him again. I said, well, obviously, you're my favorite, you know, rules official and my good luck charm. But it was, we got a pretty good laugh out of that. But, you know, I just remember it just, I just, I don't know how I just was calm that whole week. I was nervous, obviously, uh, this day. But the last day, I just kind of, uh, and, and then all of a sudden, things fell together. I missed a short putt at 17. And I'll tell you how cool it was. On 18, that back left pin, we've seen nightmare putts from there. I actually left it short of the hole from about 12 feet past the hole off the fringe. And I just left it dead in the hole, and I looked over at Scott Simpson. He said, you couldn't do that with 10,000 golf balls. And I just remember walking <laughs> off thinking, well, you're probably right. And I'll probably finish second. And next, you know, lo and behold, Nelson, and I'm walking away with the trophy. Jim, I want to get your memories also from the Ryder Cup experience in 93. You go 2-1 and one that week, including – Beating Seve in the singles three and two on the final day. You guys had actually trailed by a point going into those singles matches on Sunday. Talk about what it was like for you being in that Ryder Cup and then getting the draw to face Seve in the singles. Well, I had Tom Watson as a captain, which was just, you know, I was always a big fan of Tom. Still, you know, I'm still a big fan of Tom. He was just a total gentleman. And I just remember the whole week, I remember going over and making the team and getting on that plane and thinking, you know, this is really cool. We walk out. And I remember, like like John said, you know, they play the national anthem, and I'm going like, oh, my gosh, what did I just get myself into? <laughs> you know, what am I doing here? And I just remember the first match, we lose on the last bowl. And in the second match in the afternoon, or the, in the afternoon, that's the second day we win. And, you know, we're behind. And we go in that night, and, and Tom says that I'm supposed to play Sam Torrance. And he says he's maybe not going to play. And somebody's name has to go in the hat or the envelope, and he said uh, that Lanny's name went in the envelope, and I didn't know what that meant, and what it meant, if somebody would get hurt in the sing or the head-to-head -head singles, 
that name would then draw the person that was heard and the other person would play who they were playing. So they switched. I didn't know until that morning. I know that's confusing, but I didn't know that morning I was playing Seve until we were sitting in the church service on 18 Green with Tom and Christy Kite. And I'm telling Tom, I said, I can't wait. I hope I get to play Seve. I hope Sam can't play. I want to play Seve. The little man gets on his ladder, walks up there, and puts my name up against Seve. And Tom looks at me and goes, well, you got what you wanted. I go, yep. And I, I didn't have time to be nervous. I really didn't. Uh, and nobody expected me to win. Uh, I felt like I had, you know, it could only help me. And I remember just before I walked to the first team, Maria Floyd, uh, Raymond's wife walked up to me and she grabbed me by the shirt. She goes, Jim Gallagher, I just bet a hundred dollars. You're going to beat Seve. Don't let me down. And I was more nervous to let Maria down than to lose <laughs> Seve. Uh, and, and I was just like, Oh no, I can't lose to this. And I remember hitting the tee shot at one and, 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 and walking down the tee and I heard Bernard Gallagher telling, uh, Seve, you'll beat him seven and five. And I turned around to Tom and Lanny and I said, I'm going to whoop his butt. He's going down today. And I, it soaked the nerves away. And I was just had a sense of peace. I really did the whole day. Uh, he could not have been nothing but a gentleman. He was perfect uh, to play with. I was always a fan. I always had respect for him. He never, everybody always said, did he try anything? No. Seve was a true gentleman. Uh, and I remember him having a tear in his eye when, you know, I beat him. It just meant so much to him. And I thought to myself, I just beat arguably the greatest Ryder Cup player in the history of the game. If I can do this, why can't I continue to play well? And it just took my confidence to an entire different level and probably put some pressure on myself, too, and expectations. Uh, and I think that's what I, I wasn't aware of. I wasn't as sharp out it and understanding what I knew now because sometimes when I got struggling, oh, yeah, you beat Seb, you're supposed to be playing at this level. And I think I struggled with that. Even though I won a couple times in '95, those things, those expectations, have been going me there towards the end. But man, it was a week I'll always remember. My mom and dad were there, my aunt and uncle were there, and uh, to beat Seve Ballesteros. I mean, I it's the last. Our team was the last win in Europe uh, in '93 uh, for the Americans. But I, I think that's going to change. I think the American teams are getting stronger and stronger. Jim, before I let you go, let our listeners know, how can they stay up to date with the great things that you're doing now, whether they're, they're uh, following you online or it's on social media? Well, I actually have a podcast called Only One Shot Golf, and it's been cool. The book was written by V.J. Perlio, who's the uh, swing instructor at Old Waverly, and it basically, the book is based on what makes an elite golfer elite. He used half of the story of my life with my dad teaching me and combined it with you know, what makes elite players in his opinion. And he's written several books and he's a great instructor. And so we started doing this podcast called Only One Shot Golf. We've been doing it for about two and a half years. I get college coaches, uh, instructors, players, a bunch of my tour friends. And it's just fun to do that. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I do Gallagher JR on Twitter and then Gallagher, uh, Gallagher JR on Instagram. So the kids kind of watch me to make sure I'm tweeting responsibly and doing the right things on Instagram. So they kind of control me a little bit there, but the podcast <laughs> has been so much fun. Uh, but you know, as, as my the kids said, you can't post more than once a day. Dad, quit posting all these things. So uh, I have to be aware of that, but it's, uh, you know, when you get to our age, you just kind of, kind of go with it, do what the kids tell you. But the podcast has been so much fun. I had Barbara Nicholas on at one time. I've had Nancy Lopez. I've had Archie Manning. I've had so many, I, I could go, top college coaches and I've been covering a lot more college golf. So it's been helpful to do that and getting to know these coaches and these players, but it's been, it's been fun to do that. I do my own editing and music. So if you hear some mistakes in there, that's because I'm just a rookie trying to do it uh, on my own, but I, I have a lot of fun. 
Jim, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule and the Justin Bieber concert to come and be a part of the show. I hope you'll come back and do it again sometime. Yeah, I won't do the Justin Bieber concert. You saved me from that, Chris. <laughs> anytime, give me a call. And I love Justin Bieber. I just didn't want to sit there and concert. <laughs> Jim, you're fantastic. Take care, my friend. All the best in your family. We'll catch up soon. All right, buddy. Thanks. See you, Jim. That's a great Jim Gallagher Jr. So many great stories. And I tell you what, that, that FedEx St. Jude one, it gets you, ch- you know, choked up just hearing what that was like. And I am going to certainly go back and read a little bit more of the detail, but what a tremendous thing to, to promise a little girl with leukemia that you're going to come win that, that golf tournament for her. Uh, and then, and then pull it off. That's, that's legendary stuff right there, folks. And Jim's fantastic. I look forward to having him back on the show again soon. Before I get to my next guest, Dustin Brecky and Eddie Dry, I want to give a shout out to our friends over at Strixon. Your best performance starts with the right golf ball at Strixon. A global leader in golf ball technology and innovation, Strixon offers a wide variety of award-winning golf balls for golfers of every skill level. Whether you're searching for a tour performance golf ball or a distance golf ball with incredible feel, Strixon provides the best golf balls at incredible prices. Strixon offers a wide variety of personalized options while also developing a highly visible colored golf ball as well. Select the right golf ball for your game today and trust it with Strixon. Check them out online at Strixon.com. S-R-I-X-O-N.com. Find the right golf ball for your game today. I also want to remind you about our friends over at Sun Mountain. There's a company nestled in the valley of Missoula, Montana, that embodies the essence of quality, function, and innovation, and that's Sun Mountain which started building golf bags back in 1981. They are an industry leader in golf bags, travel covers, outerwear, and push carts. With flagship products that you've come to know, like the C-130 cart bag, the 2.5 ultralight stand bag, the club glider travel cover, the speed cart, and Rainflex rain gear. Sun Mountain continues its quest to provide the very best in golf products to every range of golfer. Visit them online at sunmountaingolf.com to look at their amazing products. Okay, now joining me are a couple of guys that I've been looking forward to having on the show, and that's Dustin Brecky and Eddie Dry from Strixon Cleveland Golf. Dustin is the Director of Engineering, and Eddie has been a great friend of the show for the last few years. He is the Regional Sales Manager for both brands, and I'm honored to have him with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Dustin. Hey, Eddie. Thanks for coming on the show. <laughs> hey, hey, Chris. Hey, Eddie. Hey, Chris. Great to be here. Thanks, Dustin. Dustin, I want to start our time out with you tonight because I'm incredibly excited to get my hands on the new Cleveland Launcher XL Driver. It won gold this year in the Golf Digest Equipment Testing. It looks like an exciting driver that can help us hit it long and straight. Take us through what makes this year's driver so special. Yeah, great. Love to start there. Um, What that driver's doing really is just a forgiveness and ball speed monster for everybody that um, it's hitting center and off center. So that's, you know, including the game improvement player. It's an extremely large head, um, that you can still swing. Uh, it's light. Um, so you can get head speed, generate head speed. Uh, you can still turn it over. Um, but it just is massively forgiving. Um, and Cleveland with the model there is packed with ball speed technology as well. So, uh, we talk about rebound frame, which is, uh, a trampoline-like technology that's going to maximize your ball speed. 
Um, but just the size of it and the weight distribution that we have throughout is, is going to maintain that impact, uh, maintain those ball speeds and distance kind of no matter where you hit. So straighter, higher, longer, uh, I mean, everything, you know, most people are looking for. Dustin, for those of us that are a little north of our 20s or 30s and we need a little more swing speed, the Launcher XL Lite seems like what we should put in our bags. Explain how that club can get us a little more swing speed. Yeah, absolutely. That's a club that's built a little bit longer, lighter. Um, exactly like you said, it's going to allow for more head speed uh, to be generated with the same swing um, for the player looking to make up some of that uh, you know, lost distance or just for more gain um, without sacrificing um, size, without sacrificing your uh, MOI and, and how much your off-center impacts and and less than perfect swings are still going to perform. So uh, I think it's a great option. Um, it's not adjustable, but for this player, it's typically, you know, what can you give me that I'm going to swing as fast as possible and hit straight and far? And that's what the performance is designed for. Eddie, when you think about the Launcher XL, for the average player like me, what does that mean for us? Can I first say that, uh, congratulations on this show growing it? fast as it is and all the awards you're getting okay i appreciate you that that that's very good and now this is going to be hard to beat Sevy. That, that's a good story this gal is a story <laughs> out there okay but uh I, I, my my job my part of this is to is to take what dustin has made and, and say okay here's what happens in the field okay so the the first thing is one of the things whether you use the light version or you just use the normal adjustable, the adjustable version has a eight gram weight at the end of the grip, that kind of a counterbalance effect. And when you pick it up, it feels kind of light. It is light. It feels very balanced. So that's the first thing you're going to feel when you hit it. You're still going to have more weight. It just doesn't feel like a grip. Okay. And when when I was out in the field and, and we had customers tested, you know, lot, so many good fitters out there today. So you get on a launch monitor and the very first thing they find is that there's no side spin with this ride. I'm not, I'm still not quite sure how Dustin did that, but there, there's really, I mean, it's below any minimal levels you've ever seen. So when you're going to tee the ball up with the, with the Cleveland uh, Launcher XL, it's going to, it's, it's made to launch up in the air and it's made to go straight. It will not spin left. It will not spin right. If you're looking for a driver that you want to drop or you want to slice, this probably isn't it, Chris, because this is made to tee it up, hit it down the middle and with, with whichever launch angle you want. You just sold me right there and probably 99% of my audience. I mean, we're going to hit this thing straight. No spin on the sides. I mean, we're going to, wherever we line up, it's going to go where we aim it. Unbelievable. That's like sent from the gods. And we're not going to spend $550 to do it either. Is that right, Eddie? Well, I, I cheated. I already told you it was uh, under $400. $399. And this is the adjustable version the, uh, with, with the, the weights on the end, the whole thing. One of the things Dustin has done, and it, it's very rare. Um, if you wanted a 10.5 driver, regular shaft, you'd get a regular shaft, manufactured, send you the head, 
adjusted already at 10.5, okay? But you get a wrench, and you know what? That thing goes from 10.5 to 10. You can adjust it 10 to 9.5 to 9, or you can go up 10.5, 11, 11, 5, 12. Same head. You don't have to go buy another head. It's all there. How about that? What? Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, unbelievable. Eddie, let's move a little bit further down the bag. Let's talk about fairway woods. We see you guys out on tour hitting it well over 300 yards with a three wood now. What's making fairway woods fly so much further? Well, well it, it's a continuation. But one thing I didn't tell you, when you get your driver, Chris, you pull the head cover off, you know what the first thought is? That is a big head. And it gives you confidence right there. Well, the fairways are similar. They are indeed, they are indeed large three wood, the five wood, seven wood. And they're just made to give you confidence. And, you know, there, if Dustin was here, you heard him say rebound frame. Okay. But think about this. In the, I'll, I'll try to say what Dustin would have said. Um, you know, a driver, the ball hits the center, hopefully, or somewhere close. It gives a little rebound effect, and it, it goes flying off into the air, right? So people want to make the center of gravity bigger. But with with this rebound frame, what we've done is, if you can imagine, if you dissected the head of either the fairway wood, seven wood, or or the, the driver, it, there would be something very stout, very strong, and then beside it there would be something that gave a little bit and then the next the next thing would be stronger and the next would be flexible and what's happening is when the driver hits the ball the entire head is, is rebound and it, it, it's working it, it's working very well that product is doing great and especially at the price and you mentioned seven wood it's been a little while since i've heard people talking about seven woods Nowadays, a lot of players are opting to take their three, four, and maybe even their five irons out of the bag and replacing them with higher lofted fairway woods, hybrids, or the Cleveland Halo Highwoods. Talk about those and what our bag makeup should be there at the either higher end of irons or more from a hybrid wood perspective. Yeah, I mean, I mean, let's, let's start for, with the basically a three wood is the hardest fairway wood for anyone to hit off the ground. Okay. And if you hit it off the tee, it spins more. There are people that are taking the five wood goes so far and it's so big in this Cleveland Golf XL line that they're taking the three wood out of the bag, putting it over to the side, leaving the garage and taking their five wood. And they use that in place of the three wood. What does that do? It frees you up for another wedge, frees you up for whatever else you want to put in the bag. And a lot of people are scoring better because of that. Um, it also is, um, the four irons, the five irons, a lot of iron sets go six through now. They've a lot of them five through, you know, because the four iron, the three iron is, is hard for a lot of us to hit. And so they go into the hybrid. We just made hybrids bigger. You know, there's a lot of, it's, I'm, not every person hits a hybrid great. Uh, and that's why the seven wood is so good. Because you can sweep fairway woods, it's hard to sweep hybrids. You need to hit down on them a little bit, like iron. Does that make sense to you? It does. 
Dustin, let's talk wedges. There have been a lot of innovations in drivers, which we've talked about. A lot of innovations in our irons and the golf all over the years, but not a lot has changed in the wedge segment. Talk to us about grooves in the wedges and how much better, deeper, and how much more spin and how we can hit it higher and land it softer now with what you guys have done with your wedges. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. I mean, grooves are just huge part of the performance of hitting shots out of all conditions. Um, you know, specifically a lot of rough, out of wet conditions, different lies. Um, you know, we've been tracing back for, um, the last several years trying to build back all that performance from the groove rule change, you know, if you remember 10, 12 years ago. Uh, but grooves now are able to, uh, wick away more of that debris. Uh, to have better impact than we've ever had before. Um, and what it really comes down to is just how much volume of, of grass, of substance can you get out of the way so the golf ball can still make good contact with the face, with the face milling, with the face friction laser that are on there. Um, and that's a complex problem. It's the golf ball is on the face for half a millisecond. It's starting to rotate. Um, it's grabbing. It's trying to channel away debris. And every single loss that it's doing that is a different set of equations. So it's something that's just continuous testing, continuous analysis and evaluation. And um, I think we just continue to see and develop improvements in, in spin. Eddie, for the average player, what does that mean? But one thing, it means you don't have to have a 64-degree wedge or a 62 or even a 60 to hit the ball, maybe even out of a, a rough near the green over a trap and stop it. Uh, it means that you can use a 58-degree, which is a much easier club than a 60 to hit. And even if you go to a 56, a 54, or 52, you're going to get more spin off the 52-degree wedges than you used to 10 years ago by a lot, by a lot. And that's, that's the growth. The grooves just help everything. And, it, it, you know, you could even use a full-face wedge where, that, where the wedge is uh, a little bit bigger. Mm -hmm. You go up a little bit higher because you don't – it's made for use around the rough because you don't know exactly where you're going to hit the center of the ball. Some people do that. But but grooves are, are everything if you're in the rough. And most of us are in the rough. Most <laughs> amateurs find ourselves there. Now, right. uh, now you know, Jim Gallagher and the golf pros would say all oh, the grooves are important because one stroke or one half a stroke around is, is the difference of millions of dollars. But for us amateurs, we tend to find ourselves behind sand traps and in the rough more than, more than pros, okay? So that's why we need... We need these wedges. Dustin, you guys offer so many different launch angles or lie angles with your wedges, plus different grinds. And now we can get our wedges with full face grooves, which never used to be a thing. Talk about why you offer so many different lofts and why weren't full face grooves always a thing? Yeah, I, I think from a, from a plane and a technology standpoint, wedges are just such a precise part of your bag. Um, you are trying to precisely land next to the hole from a whole range of different distances with a controlled amount of spin. And you simply need to have every option possible to be able to play those shots and, and get what you want out of them. So the difference from 
like Eddie just said, from a 60 to a 58, it's huge. But every two degrees, there's an option that's going to give you a different distance control, uh, a different repeatability. They're all maximizing spin um, and maintaining that spin in different conditions. Um, but then you also have all the grinds and bounces that are on them as well, because, you know, let's face it, we're all seeing a wide range of different conditions on the course, and we need to be able to perform in, in each and one of those. So um, wedge fitting is, is a huge opportunity and advantage for players to understand the shots they're taking on the course and making sure they get the right bounce and lost into their bag. I think there's, you know, just still not enough information out there to uh, to make those decisions obvious. So how do we know which loft, which grind, which set of wedges is really the right one for us? I think one place you want to start is where's your where's your pitching wedge at? Where's that last full, you know, swing club that you are, are comfortable and are happy to swing, but, you know, don't want to start doing partial swings with? Pitching wedge nowadays is our strongest, 44 degrees, 43 degrees, you know, multiple degrees stronger than previous generations. But that's where you start. And then realistically, you want to gap about four degrees between each of your wedges. Um, so with pitching wedge getting stronger, I mean, you absolutely need three wedges in the bag. Many players are getting closer to, are getting into that fourth. Um, so that's where I think you start on the loft. And then on the bounce, it's about what turf conditions do you play and how aggressive is your is your attack, is your swing. Um, so if you're really looking to play on the, the short, firm condition and you have a steep, you have an aggressive ball back in your stance, if you um, get that full bounce, you know, it's going to be too much for you. You're not going to be able to get leading edge down onto the ball. Um, you're going to be able to do better with a, a low bounce where you're able to, uh, to hit the aggressive shots off of, um, tight conditions. Uh, the opposite side, if you're playing in wet course conditions, you're out there where you, you know, are needing to fight and make sure you don't, uh, chunk these shots that you have consistent head speed through impact. Um, now you're looking more on that mid to full, you know, bounce side where it has the extra bounce. It's going to resist, um, those course conditions that are trying to pull your head, pull your head down. Um, so I think those are the best places to start and where we've tried to instruct over the years, you know, in different opportunities, like kind of playing off the pitching wedge and, and type of course conditions and shot shape you like to play. Eddie, we've talked about drivers, fairway woods, and wedges. Let's just talk overall bag setup. What are you seeing average players do with the number of woods they're carrying and the number of wedges they're carrying? What's the right setup for us? Clearly, uh, for for the average double digit handicap, whether that's 10, 12, 14, 18, whatever, uh, a high fairway wood or a high, if they hit a hybrid, great, fine. Put two hybrids in the back. Put a five. Put a five hybrid in. Uh, if you're not a hybrid person, uh, seven wood is, is mandatory. Uh, if you're an average golfer, three woods usually are too difficult to hit. Like they do a five and a seven. And for wedges, let me, let me mention something. Um, Dustin, Dustin and, and their group has made a new way. It's called the, it's a cavity back way. It's called the CBX zip cord. It has all the groove technology that, that he knows. But it's a, it's a little bit of a cavity back. It doesn't look like it, but when you look close at the back, it is. 
And what that does is it, it, it doesn't have a choice of balance. It comes with one dynamic toll, so you don't have to worry about it. You just pick the lock you want, and it's already made to help. So I'll be coming out to see you at Marietta Club <laughs> with, uh, with some CBX wedges, okay? CBX zip cord. But what, what happens then is, let's just say you have a normal pitching wedge cavity back at 43 degrees. You know, you can get a 50 of the CBX zip. 54 and a 58. And that really will take care of a 90% or more of the shots that you really need. You don't have to try to hit that 60 degree flop shot. You've got a 58 that works well. The grooves work, uh, and a, and down to a 54 and a, and a 50. And you should do fine. The 54 might, the 50 degree might be your 100 yard shot. And that's what everybody needs to look at. Not just the gas, but everybody needs to know. Hey, I'm, I'm golden from 90 yards or I'm golden from a hundred and that will help you a lot. Eddie, you and I had a great conversation a week or so ago about choosing the right golf ball for our game. Many times we see a player like Brooks or Hideki out there winning and we think we need to get that ball or the high dollar ball must be the best ball. So I need to get that one. Walk us through the Strixon suite of golf balls and explain to our listeners like you did to me. What each golf ball is designed to do so we know which one is the right match for our game. One thing you have, everyone that is going to decide, maybe they're thinking about what golf ball, what you're going to say. The first thing is about player. You, you have to be honest with you. You have to ask, say, what gets me in trouble? What, 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 what's going on here? For example, if you are, if your driver's getting you in trouble, the buying the, buying the Cleveland driver and launch your driver is probably the first thing. But let's be honest. You want a ball that doesn't spin off the driver. Now, most two-piece balls usually do that. Our Q-Star is a wonderful two-piece ball, probably the best in the business. I'll go out and throw my hand up for that. Uh, the same dimple pattern as the Tour Ball, for goodness sakes. But the, the Q-Star Tour Ball, the Q-Star Tour is a three-piece ball with urethane. So it's soft. Stands, but it's only 70 or 72 compression. So it, it's a tour ball for, for, for those of us that aren't on tour. And when you hit it off the driver, it doesn't spin. It will go where you aim. But on irons, it, the ball is made to launch higher. And with irons, it, it actually goes almost a club further. So instead of coming up short, th- that's where you start. So, you know, for, for, Again, double-digit handicap, Q-Star is two-piece. Q-Star Tour is is uh, different because it doesn't. Now, the Z-Star series or the Tour series, and you have a lot of good golfers that listen to this. Um, you know, Kepka is using uh, a new ball about, and he's using it for one reason, because there are two platforms. One is a low 90 compression, one's over 100 compression. So it's obvious that over the 100 compression it is harder and it, it, it might go further if you can compress it, but it doesn't spin much because they want to, they don't want it to spin off the driver. Well, Kepka wants it to spin a little bit. And there's a lot of players now that get, they need a little spin. So the diamond ball, uh, versus the Z Star XD. Uh, actually gives a little more spin. It's made to spin a little bit more, even at over 100 compression. 
So that diamond ball is one you might you might go try uh, if you're in that range. And the Z Star spins a lot. Uh, you have a lot of women listening to your show. I, I know you do. Uh, yep. The Q Star Tour Ball is a low seventy that loves the ball. Has it's one of the divide balls. It was the original, maybe half yellow, maybe half orange. It's just wonderful. Our most popular ball is, is the Chalkfield. It only retails for like twenty two ninety five, and it's extremely durable. It, it, it's great in the wind, which our balls, if you talk to any tour player, one of the things they say is, well, it's great in the wind. I mean, that's the first thing they say. But it's true of all the amateurs, too. They they know that. So the Tallfield starts it, and it's in a lot of colors, and you move up to the Q-Star, uh, two-piece in the Q-Star Tour, and then you get into the, the Tour Series, the Z-Star, if that helps. Yeah, Eddie, I think that's a huge help. I think what you've done is given us a lot of information to figure out which one is the right golf ball for our golf games. And I tell you what, for you guys, I think what you're going to see is a run on those Q-Star Tours because I can't wait to get that golf ball in my bag. Dustin, you guys have given us a lot of new options, a lot of new technology, given us a lot of knowledge about what Strixon Cleveland Golf has to offer and how it can improve our games. For those of us that want to know more information and continue to do the research to find out exactly which clubs are best for us, exactly which golf ball is for us. How can we go about doing that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and Eddie can address it too, but I mean, get it online to our clevelandgolf.com, get strixon.com. Um, all the product information, we got product videos, specs, details. Um, you can find the options and, and what's going to be uh, resonating with you. And I, I think, you know, just exciting with that, Cleveland option in particular with the Launcher XL series that, you know, if all else fails and you're getting overwhelmed, like that product is one that's designed to, you know, work for the masses, to be a lifesaver for the masses. It's trying to target the player that just wants to hit it straight, you know, eliminate side spin, uh, go for distance and um, doesn't need to know every in and out of technology and fitting and uh, precision and options and weight shift and so on. Um, so I think that's such a, fantastic and exciting offering but all the information online cleveland golf tricks on um yeah that's where you find it eddie any demo days or other special events coming up where we can check out the product we do a great short game plan and usually they charge a, a, a golf course will charge 150 dollars. you get lessons you get to, to hit and try you get to see someone and at the end of the day guess what you walk away with a brand new wedge too. They fit you and gap fit you for that. So when you go online to clevelandgolf.com, look for a short game clinic and, and click into that. And, and there's a, there's a place on there that just shows them all. So that's certainly, it, it, that's certainly one of the places. Uh, and I, you know, if, if you've ever been in a, a, a retail store, there's usually a hundred of our wedges in there and every, just about everything and every finish you have. And then, any golf pro, any professional you go to, you know, one of the great things about green grass and, and taking a lesson and being fit, uh, you can see the ball file. You know, you get on their range, you pay somebody to, to help fit you, but it's not much. And, and they actually do a really good job real quick. They can fit the entire bag and you can hit this club or that club and you can see the, the trajectory of the ball. And that's where, that's where it starts. And, you know, again, talking to women, 
I don't see nearly as many women being fit, Chris, as I do men. But I, I just think it's just not something that the golf industry's done a great job. So why would you play golf clubs? You're going to keep for a couple of years, three years, five years, and not at least ask the professional's opinion. They're, they're really good at it and they, they can help everybody's game. Well, Dustin, Eddie, I can't thank you guys enough for coming on and being a part of the show and being partners with me here on Next on the Tee. I hope we get the opportunity to catch up with you guys a little bit later on in the season, continue to hear more about the technology and what makes the equipment and the golf ball so great, and then maybe a look ahead to some of the great stuff that you guys are planning for 2023. But thank you for coming on and being a part of tonight's show. Uh, thank you, Chris. I appreciate it very much. And thank Dustin. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely love it. Uh, pleasure to be on and we look forward to doing it again. Thank you very much. Take care, my friends. We'll catch up again soon. Thank you. That's Dustin Brecky and Eddie Dry from Strixon Cleveland Golf. So many great pieces of information shared right there. So a lot of great technology stuff. And, and, the, and the thing that I find very helpful about what they shared is really in our, in our bag makeup. Right. What do we really need in order to play our best golf? And I'll tell you what, I can't I can't say enough how excited I am to get one of those Cleveland launchers in my hand, because as all of us. Right. I mean, what what do we really want as a recreational golfer? I want to go to from point A to point B and not have to get there by going through the rough, the trees, the water, all that sort of stuff. Right. If I can find a golf ball, like you said, with the Q Star Tour and the Cleveland Launcher XL. It's going to go where I aim it and it's not going to have a lot of side spin. Yeah, I want that in my golf game. I want to line up on the tee. I want to aim in a certain direction and I want the ball to land there. Then I want to go get it and hit it again. And I want to aim, want it to go where I'm aiming the next time. Right. And with the technology that they have, well, I can't wait to give that a try. So thank you very much to, uh, to Dustin again, Dustin Brecky and Eddie Dry of Tricks on Cleveland Golf for being a part of the show tonight. And we'll look forward to hearing about the new technologies uh, in the future. We'll get them back on a little bit later this year. All right, folks, time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the Tee. My sincere thanks go out again to Mitch Lawrence, John Mahaffey, Jim Gallagher Jr., Dustin Brecky, and Eddie Dry for joining me tonight. Scheduled to join me next week are our resident director of instruction, Tom Patrick, will be back, as will nine-time winner between the PGA and Champions Tours, Tom Pertzer. Looking forward to having Tom back as part of the show. 1989 Open champion Mark Kalkovecchia will also be back. And then making his next on the tee debut will be two-time winner out on tour, Rick Fair. So it's going to be a great show, folks. I hope you come back and join me and be a part of it. You can listen to this show as a podcast on just about every major podcasting app, including we're out there on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Podcast.co, Audioboom, Player.fm, and Podbean as well. Folks, please check out our website, nextonthetee.net. On there, you'll be able to keep up to date with what our guest schedule looks like. Plus, we give you links back to recent episodes and individual guest segments. So whether you've got an hour and a half, two hours, or 20 minutes, we're going to give you something that you're going to want to listen to. Thank you again for choosing to listen to the show tonight. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.